chapter 6 and 7, but to give a little bit of review, we look at Revelation chapter 4, and we can see that God is showing up in all his splendor. It is there to display um, what he has done for us and what he, how big, how awesome, how amazing, how holy God is. What is holiness? A separation from evil. So God does not have evil. That's why we were cast out of his presence, because we've allowed sin into our lives. And to get back to his presence, what's he do? He sends his son, and that's what chapter 5 is all about, right? The lamb that was slain, the lion of Judah, they are one and the same. The Jewish people think he's going to be a conquering king. Gentile people, we kind of think he was a, should be a conquering king too, but he's not. He comes as a lamb who was slain, and guess what? He didn't just die for you and I, but he died for our enemies as well. That kind of just blows my mind away a little bit because when we see how much we are unworthy um, and he saved us, he didn't do that just for me. He didn't do that just for you. He did that for everyone. And so that gives an opportunity for all to be redeemed, all to come to the Lord and Savior. And that is exciting to me. And maybe that's the first time you've heard that this morning, but um, God is calling all of us to repentance, right? Every day. How many people are sinless in 24 hours? I might be lucky to go without an hour. And that's because I'm sleeping, right? Um, we are very selfish beings, and so God calls us to something bigger than us. And if he can call us to that, and we can focus on his holiness, it gives us a glimpse of what we can find to uh, walk in his, his way. And when we walk in his way, we can achieve somewhat holiness, as I'll, I'll say. Maybe periods of time where we can emulate Christ in our life, right? Not always, but we have moments of brilliance. It's kind of like... When I actually have a good idea around the house, my wife's like, that was a good idea. Of course, I have to hear that again. What was that? Um, of course, I did the same thing yesterday, and I was wrong when I tried to pull that one off, and she was right. So I was like, oh, man, I really should eat some crow on that one. Love you, honey. She's in the nursery. Uh, but that's, that's why I was attracted to her in the first place, so... I was wrong in scripture, she was right, and uh, that's where it goes. So. so when we tend to focus, what, is, what do we tend to focus on when we get to Revelation chapter 6 and 7? Well, if you look at it, it is a lot about doom and gloom, right? There's a lot of things that are going to happen. The four horsemen come. The fifth one isn't much better, but it is like, uh, Lord, when are you going to redeem us? And things. The sixth one is more doom and gloom. And seven, it's it's silence. So that's that's you find that actually in chapter eight, verse one is is that. And it's like wow. So I admit, I look at the doom and gloom. I really do. Instead, maybe what I should be doing is and what I've done, I've glossed over the fact that there's somebody worthy to open these seals. There is hope because Jesus Christ is bigger than we are. He is worthy, and we are not, and that is exciting to me because he died for all, even those who crucified him. 
he died for them too. He is our redeemer. He paid our debt so we could be free, just like we sang this morning. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. The story is about him and not me. And I got to remember that because in my selfish state of pride, I like to, to make revelation about me. And it's not. It's about obedience. Okay, so that can be about me, but it's obedience to the one who is worthy. And that is what the story is all about. And I'm like, hmm, that kind of knocks me down off my pedestal a little bit, right? Which I probably shouldn't have been on in the first place, so that's a good thing. So today we're going to learn about the followers that died in their faith to follow him. And that brings us today to the main point. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. If we submit to him by his grace, he freely gives us hope and a future. And that's exciting to me. If we submit to him, he gives us hope and a future. It's that submitting part that I have a hard time with. But when I do it, I, I kind of feel like, as a musician, we would say, I feel like I'm in the pocket, right? So I, I can feel the groove, and I'm like there. I'm like, yes, that's, that's it where I'm supposed to be. And God is faithful and just, and he forgives me of my unrighteousness. And so I have a desire to serve him because he's worthy to be served. Do you want to serve a master that's going to remember your wrongs? That's going to turn things against you? To remember your past? Remember who you were? Remember back in the eighth grade when you did that thing? Or remember your first job that you had? And you weren't so honest on the cash drawer? Things like that. God doesn't remember those things. He doesn't hold them against you. That's what he means about that, okay? Does he remember? Yes, he's going to hold us in account to them. He's going to show us at the end times, I think, this is my personal belief. I don't know if it's in the Bible necessarily, but I think he's going to show us an account of all the wrongs that we've done, and then he's going to come along and clean them with the blood of the lamb, which is what he's done on the cross, right? And he's going to say they're washed clean and God's going to look at the books, and he's no longer going to see Shane House there as the sinner. He's going to see Jesus Christ, my son. And therefore, I become an adopted son, and so can you by accepting Christ in your life. So let's get into the end of chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, so there's seven seals, right? We've been talking about that. We talked about the first four. This is number five. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong in this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, and they followed the servant of Jesus who were to be martyred, had joined them. Okay, there's a cry for justice. A cry for justice. It's kind of that first tag there. Now, to, to have justice you have to have a moral code. You have to know what right and wrong is, right? 
you have to understand what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. We tell this to the youth group quite often. This is something that we've gone over not too long ago. You find this in Romans. Romans does a really good job of breaking it down to say that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, right? And he points out examples how God is pointed, here's evidence of God, and you've missed it on purpose because you've ignored the evidence. Okay? And so since we have evidence for God that that's in his creation, and we also have evidence for God in a moral code, okay? So a moral code, what's right and wrong, how do you know that? Well, you could say, like the world says, and this is a bit of a tangent where I'm going, but I think it's important this morning. What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. You do you, in a sense. That's what you hear a lot today, right? You hear that all the time. You do you and I'll do me. Okay, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is if you say that to a serial killer, you do you and then you're the next target. That doesn't work out for me very well, right? I mean, I get to heaven quick, so I'm good, but God desires life and so, so do I, especially mine. That's where I can get a little selfish. I think it's okay, right? And so when that, those two moral capacities collide, there has to be something bigger than us, right? So we turn to society. Society is going to set our morals. But what does society set its morals on? Right now, they're spiraling down into you do you and I do me. And what's that doing? We're butting heads. We're disagreeing. There's, there's got to be something bigger than society, Right? And so if there's something out there that's bigger than society, you have to say that there's a moral code giver. And if there's a moral code giver, he has to have some kind of authority. And if he has authority, who's that going to be? So it points to a God. A moral code points to God. That's why atheists want to get rid of moral codes and they want to get rid of creation because both point to a God. And if you run into that, you are in big trouble because you have to submit to some rules now. Anarchy, which is what those you do, you, you do me, will eventually turn to, doesn't want to submit to any rules, does it? And so there's a cry for justice from these people that have been martyred, and they come into this, and they're like, when, Lord, when will you give us justice? When will you bring these people to justice? And he says, you need to wait. Be patient. You've waited this long, wait a little bit longer. So what is this injustice? Well, it all started clear back toward creation with Cain and Abel. When Cain kills Abel, God tells Cain, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And to Cain... In his situation, there's no remorse there. I think he's the, one of the very first psychopaths in, in ever created, I think. Seriously, because he, there's no remorse there. What's Cain worried about? He's worried about his punishment. He's, the only thing he says, he doesn't say sorry. He doesn't say forgive me. He, he says, this punishment's too hard. What you've given me, it's too hard. He focuses on himself. That's what got him in the in trouble in the first place, right? When we take our eyes off of us and put it on 
others and the Lord, then voila, you have an equation there to have one compassion and wanting to serve others. And that takes your eyes off of you really quickly, right? So when I study this passage, I, I could do the same thing a lot of times. I want to take my eyes off of the one who is worthy, and I want to focus on the pain and the suffering, and I do that even now in my own life. I think we all do that. My daughter's the perfect example. She gets anything happened to one of her fingers, what's she need? I need a Band-Aid. I need a Band-Aid! I heard that five to six times this weekend. Mommy, I need a Band-Aid! Band-Aids fix everything, if you didn't know that. Just lop your hand off, Band-Aid, boom, good, you're good. All right, I don't think that's quite true. You didn't, maybe you shouldn't believe that one, right? Um, but if you get a hangnail, Band-Aid works pretty good. You get a bruise, Band-Aid. Um, it works for my six-year-old, five-year-old, so... I guess she is six, isn't she? I was looking for my wife, and William's like, come on. Thanks, bud. All right. I need, so I need to remember these instructions. Perhaps you need to remember these instructions, too. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, the end of verse 1. It says, let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Okay, think about that. He disregarded the shame. Did Jesus think, oh, I'm going to be the most popular person in the class if I just sit up here and I'm, look at, everybody's going to vote for me for mayor on the cross. Vote for Jesus. No, no. He disregarded the shame. Everybody's going to hate him. Everybody's going to, if they thought he was the Messiah, they're going to say, you should have came off that cross. And if they said, you're not the Messiah, said, you didn't come off the cross, therefore you're not the Messiah. Right? It's, which is really wrong. So he, disregarding its shame, now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Where do we see the lamb sitting in Romans chapter or Revelation chapter 5. He's sitting right next to the throne, right? Okay, so that's a word picture that the lamb of God, the lamb that was slain is Jesus as well. Think of all the hostility he endured for sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Christ made it through. So can we, right? So we keep our eyes on Jesus and we can endure as Peter found out, if we keep on Je- our eyes on Jesus when we step out on the water, then we can walk in the waves. But when we take our eyes off of Jesus, then we have trouble. That's when the trouble comes in. So Jesus will avenge the saints. They were patient. They waited. And we can wait too. Because salvation comes through Jesus Christ, and if we submit to him by his grace, he freely gives us hope and a Future. Let's continue reading on Revelation 6, 7 through, or excuse me, 12 through 17. I watched as the Lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth, and the moon became as red as blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from the 
tree shaken by a strong wind, and the sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all the mountains and the islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the, gen the generals, the wealthies, the powerful, every slave and every free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the Lamb, the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to survive? The great day of the Lord. And what do we see in this great day? We have a great earthquake. We have the sun being darkened. We have the moon. It turns red. The stars of the sky fall from the sky to the earth. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. All the mountains and the islands, they were moved from their places. All this happens to created things, to things. And the people, what is their reply? So everything is going into chaos. Everything around them, the people, they... And we're talking all the people, rich and poor, slave and free, they all hide. And who are they afraid of? They go into caves. Okay, how many people think it's a good idea to go in a cave during an earthquake? Probably not the best idea. But they weren't scared of the earthquake. They were so scared that they had to get in there. They weren't afraid of that. Was it the calamity of the earth and the heavens? No. The sky, the sky is literally falling, and they are not scared of that. They want to be hid from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The day of the Lord's wrath has come. We see this described in Isaiah chapter 2. It is a result of our pride is what it says. And then Joel chapter 2 is another description. It says, the Lord is at the front leading the battle. Will the Lord be present? Absolutely. Will he be terrifying? Absolutely. What's he going to be terrifying to? Mostly our unrighteousness, right? But it impacts you. I think anytime you come in the presence of the Lord, and you can see this throughout the Bible, you see this in Isaiah chapter 6, you can see this in Ezekiel, you can see this in um, Judges, when... Anytime somebody comes in the presence of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, they're like, we're surely going to die. We are dead men walking because we've seen the Lord. It's a terrifying thing. And it's not terrifying because God is a God of wrath, like in this case, it's a God of holiness. And God's holiness will eradicate sin. And that's what the wrath is. He's so holy, it's going to wipe it all out. We're in trouble. We have sin. Right? Unless there is something to stop that wrath from coming. Unless there's a pause button. I hope there is. We'll have to keep reading. See how I built the suspense there? Last, last week, I, I, it's like, you're going to have to come back. What? It's there. So then, what do we see in the middle of Joel chapter 2? We see a call to repentance. So as this battle is coming in the beginning of Joel chapter 1, we see a call to repentance. And then he, 
this age is kind of the age that we're in right now. I would call it an age of grace, which I have kind of threw out this sermon series, that God has put a time where we can choose him if we so choose. And we choose him. God is calling us to return to him, to walk in his ways. And we do not have to fear the wrath of God because we are, we are bought and paid for from his blood. Praise God. We recognize what he's done for us. We submit to that. And if we are in good standing and we are walking in obedience with a contrite heart, what's that mean? A, a submissive heart. We should have no fear of this day. In a sense, we are fearless because we have the Lamb of God on our side, right? I mean, we still have fear. Don't get me wrong. God's going to be a great and terrible sight, I think. But we're going to see him as our now conquering king because he's waited for us for so long. There's four reasons why we can be fearless. Because God, one, God is our shepherd. You see it in your bulletin. It's Psalms 23, 1. He meets my needs and he protects me from harm. Number two, God is our heavenly father. Behold what manner of love the father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. That's 1 John 3, 1. Well, what did God give us? Did God hold anything back from us? He's given us creation. We've squandered it. We've given, he's given us a paradise. We squandered that as well. And then what did he give us? He gave us his one and only son as our redeemer. Praise God for that. And praise God he rose from the dead. And that's why he is worthy. He's the lamb that was slain. Jesus is that picture of the sacrificial lamb before the altar, now before the throne, in rest, sitting at the feet of God. Is he worried about being conquered? No. No, he is not. So number three, God, our God can handle all situations. The key to that is handing that situation over to God. So it's, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That's where I get that from. That's also a great VBS song, by the way. And every time I read that, I want to bust out into it. So with the T, I almost did it for you this morning, but I'm not going to. Number four, um, we are part of God's kingdom. We are part of God's kingdom. Remember that. The, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Every time Jesus starts a parable, he starts it like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like. Where, where do we find the kingdom of heaven? Where Jesus is. Where his spirit is. Where do we know the spirit resides? We know the spirit resides in his believers, right? I know the Spirit resides in my heart because I've asked Him to come into my life, right? Because we can have the knowledge up here. We can know what we're supposed to do. But if we don't surrender this, your heart has control, right? Your heart's the one that chases. The one, your heart's the one that longs for things. And if your heart is controlled by the Holy Spirit and is kept in step by His Word, then you don't have much to worry about. 
But if you're, if you're only relying on your head, you're not going far enough. Okay? So how do I know that? So it says, so don't be afraid, little flock, for it is, for it gives your father great happiness to give you his kingdom. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, 31 and 32. So I'm going to be like one of the Pharisees and say, how do I justify this? How do I know? What's it going to look like? Pastor, what are some practical ways to pursue this kingdom? Well, this comes to one of those hard teachings in the Bible. What he says in 33 or 34, he says, sell all your possessions and give to those in need. Ouch. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't ask that follow-up question, right? What's he mean by that? He means pursue things of heaven and not earthly possessions. Pursue things of the heavenly realm and not earthly realm. Well, what does that mean? Man, you guys are glutton for punishment this morning. It's almost like you read my notes, right? Well, ask your heart, ask yourself this question. What has your heart? What has your heart? Think of it this way. The thing that has your heart is like the time when you first fall in love and you're infatuated with that person, and you think they are, we'll go classic, the bee's knees, right? They're just the best thing since sliced bread and jelly with the crust off. I'm telling you, they're amazing. Well, if you're infatuated with that person, you would do anything for that other person's affections, wouldn't you? You'd do anything for them. Now pause and put Jesus as that person. Are you willing to do anything like that? Like the love-struck puppy dog? Not, I haven't in a while. It's been some time. That would require sacrificial action. Hey, guess what? That's the definition of love, right? You want to know? You want to show somebody you love them? You love sacrificially. You give up your time. You give up your talent. You give up your treasure. And that is not easy. It's not easy at all. That's, honestly, that's one reason why we give an offering. It's to show Jesus that we're surrendered to him. That's why we give offering in the first place. It's not, um, yes, it's nice to have the lights on when we when we preach, it's nice to be able to afford cameras to put it on on Facebook land. But it's also an act of surrender. And it's first and foremost an act of surrender to say, this, I'm giving my treasure back to you because you gave it to me in the first place. And that's like, what? I remember the first time that hit me. I was in my 20s, and that just hit me like square in between the eyes. And I was just like, Gah. I don't know if you have one of those moments before. That one was a rough one for me. I think that's, I don't know. I'm really good at making myself my own God, I guess, and putting myself on that tall pedestal. Lord's knocked me down since then quite a bit. Um, praise the Lord. But I got a ways to go yet. So it's time to put aside that thing that has taken over that infatuation. What, are the, what was the thing you put in first? 
you know, maybe it's a, a new car, maybe it's a new house, new place to live, uh, your wife, your husband, your kids, all those things can become that pedestal. Maybe it's serving your community, which sounds really good, but it's not necessarily serving the Lord, is it? And maybe it's uh, even, you can put work for the Lord in front of the Lord. Did you know that? You can say, well, I do this for God. Well, that becomes your idol instead of surrendering to the Lord and working with God. What? I know. Who, thought, who knew it was so hard? But that's, that's kind of the, the paradox we live in. It's doing life with the Lord. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. If we submit to him by his grace, he freely gives us a hope and a future. And I know what you might be thinking. Pastor, you said the saints, that those were saved by the blood of the Lamb. They would not face the wrath of God. I've said that from the beginning of Revelation, the study, right? I said, we will not face the wrath of God, but it looks to me like we're right in the middle of it. I've read it. Well, we're going to have to keep reading because chapter 7 is going to reveal something that's kind of cool here. So the, we see God's people, we see God's wrath falling on the earth, right? And then God hits the pause button. He begins to remove God's people. And I really think this is where I would call the gathering. I don't know if I'd call it the rapture, but it's whatever you want to stick on that. This is where God calls his people to heaven. So let's read it. We're going to start with the first eight, and then we'll get into uh, the, the last bit of seven. It says, Then I saw the four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, so they will not blow on the earth and the sea or, or on any tree. Okay, so we have three right there, okay? Three sets of four, and here's the fourth one. It's a single one. And I saw another angel come up from the east, carrying a seal of the living God, and he shouted to those four angels who had been given the power to harm the land and the sea, wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And I heard, and I heard now many were, ma were marked, let me start over on that one. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God, 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. First we have Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, all with 12,000 each. I look at this passage and I see that God saves a remnant of his people. What's a remnant? It's like a portion that's still good. You, you cut it off and you keep it for later. A uh, remnant of cloth is one thing. If you ever, uh, you can have paint remnants. You know, when you get the paint chips, those are paint remnants. So you have a, a thing to know, to reference by. This is God's standard that he's put on the earth. And he says, these guys have set themselves apart to serve me with their whole hearts. And so I am going to rescue them from my wrath. And so we see two things happen here. We see John sees four angels standing with the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. Four is probably kind of important, right? 
and then you see one angel which completes a set of four. Okay? You catch that? So we have three, four, three fours and one angel. That completes a set of four. So four is kind of important. What is four? What's it symbolize? You probably want to know, and I'm about to tell you, right? It symbolizes the earth, okay? Sometimes it can be six, too, because you have north, south, east, and west, up and down, okay? So that's heaven and earth or heaven and hell or however you want to uh, symbolize that. So we have the four cardinal directions it means it's all-encompassing. How encompassing? We have four angels. We have four corners. Every tree, the wind has been held back of the four winds. Wind blows wherever it pleases, right? It goes everywhere. This is all-encompassing. Everywhere, everything on the earth is going to feel God's wrath. Everything, everywhere. There's no hiding place. You can hide all the caves you want. And ultimately, I think they know that. I think they know that they can't hide from God, but I'm going to try my best because this is all I can do because I'm doing it under human effort. Then John sees another angel coming up from the east carrying the seal of God, and he shouted to those four angels who had been given the power to harm the land. He says, wait, wait. And the angel with the authority of God, he has a signet ring, and he's going to place his seal on the 144,000. And this is how we know chapter 7 is happening at the end of chapter 6. He then proceeds to place God's seal on his followers' heads. And I believe this is where we see um, that he lists the 12 tribes. This is God's way of saying, I'm pulling out a remnant of my chosen people to be set apart for a bit later. How do I know that? Because I've read ahead. That's true. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 talks about that 144,000 coming back into play. Okay? So, and, but I also think this is where he's, he's pulled out his believers at this time. Because it's the first time you see in all Revelation where it talks about a multitude that cannot be counted. I don't, I can't give you, I can give you a best guess. But I don't know. I don't know um, because it says they are the martyrs, and we'll get into that a little bit. But are we considered a martyr? I don't know. I, I don't know how that works. Okay, But I, I know that I believe this is where I'm going to be called up into heaven. Okay, Which gets a little tricky in the next two sections of Revelation. Yay! It's a hard book to study, I'm telling you. So, But other people, they, they something... It's a, a literal 144,000, um, and some believe that the 144,000 represent the multitude. And so they point to Numbers chapter 1, and they say, well, see, he says he pulls out these specific numbers, and then when you look at the numbers that were actual, um, I, it's thousands, and by the time you look at the whole thing, it was 603,000 of the people of Israel, and so it, those two numbers aren't relational and so it's more of a symbolism there i don't know maybe um it could be just the view of the jewish nation in proportion to um all believers and so i'll say like there's a billion believers on the earth um of those 
in a ratio to would be 144,000. I don't know either on that one either. That's it's like yay, good confidence in your study. That I got uh, this one was a tough one, and so I came to the matters. So I'm not sure as much as I'm not sure if it really matters as much as God's calling out His people, right? And that's what matters. He answers the cries of the martyrs we see in the fifth seal, and he pulls them into creation. And salvation comes through Jesus Christ. We need to submit to him by his grace. He freely gives us a hope and a future. Let's read the rest of chapter 7, starting in verse 9, and I think it'll make it a little bit more clear. It's clear as mud, right? Maybe we can sift some of that dirt out of that water. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, and from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and above the the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. And they said, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, remember that is very, very similar to what we saw back in chapter four and five, right? Okay, so that might be a a big picture, it's narrowing the picture a little bit, which is kind of where I tend to go. Let's continue reading on. 13 says, Then one of the 24 elders asked me, Who are these that are clothed in white? Where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you, know, you are the one that knows. And then he says to me, These are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and make them white. This is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne he will give them shelter and it says in the King James and a lot of other versions tabernacle and I think that's important um, so I stick that in there they will never again be hungry or thirsty they will never be scorched by the heat of the sun for the lamb on the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away the every tear from their eyes. Salvation comes from our God and the Lamb. This is the first time we see a vast crowd, too numerous to count. They're clothed in white robes like Joshua was in Zechariah chapter 3, which we talked about earlier. You can go back and listen to that or go on the website and the, the sermons are on there as well. The blood of Jesus cleansed them from their sins, right? They're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. We were once again in the throne room, but this time the room is full of this multitude of believers. The last time we were in the throne room was in chapter 4, but there wasn't anybody around. And this time we see a picture, everybody's there. All the believers are around. So I think there's something that's happened between then. I think it's happened in this pause God's called up his people. That's my personal opinion. Okay? So, let's continue on. We have them not only in white robes, white robes, but with palm branches. This would be the same branches. It's a set of four. It's called a, a lulav. 
that that they would have they would have waved in six different directions, northeast, south, and west, and up and down, like we saw on Palm Sunday. So we use palm leaves. They use palm branches, okay? They use the whole stock thing, and then they had four other, um, or three other plants that went with it, okay? And so they would wave that, and it, so that would significant, the significance of that is uh, we have salvation coming to all the earth, okay? They were shouting, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb, God the Father, and God the Son, right? The, earth, the elders, they asked this unique question. Where did all these come from? Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, you're the guy that told me to stop crying just a little bit ago, so you tell me. <laughs> I, I don't think he said it quite that cocky, but I probably would have, so that's probably why he didn't choose me to go into heaven and see this vision. He chose John. He says, you tell me. John's a very humble man if you ever read and study him a little bit. I got a ways to go. So these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. Well, what did we read for our call to worship this morning? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We're going to read it again because it really points to this stop, pause, and you can kind of see what's going to happen here. It says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when, when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. So we'll see the ones that have been martyred for their faith, they're going to go up. The people that have passed away, who lived in faith, they're going to go up. And then those who are alive, they will go up. Okay? For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the, and with the trumpet call of God, First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive will remain on the earth and be called up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be, then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other in these words. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. It says that there's going to be a trumpet sound, and we haven't really had a trumpet sound unless you kind of work the one in, in four, which I don't. I've already discarded that one. Um, the trumpets happen next. So where does that happen? Well, I really think the trumpets are taking this point in time, and they're narrowing it down and saying, this is what's going to happen in here. And inside those trumpets, we're going to see this is what happens with the beast. Okay, And so it's kind of a dovetail effect um, on top of each other which is not necessarily the popular belief. A lot of people believe that this is going to happen systematically. I'm not sure if it does that way. Uh, I'm not saying it can't, because I am, I am looking into the distant future, and I am not a predictor of the future, okay? But as I look at this, it really looks like it dovetails, and I think it can point to different uh, phrases, like the one that salvation belongs to our God. We see that repeated more than once throughout those phrases, and they all kind of line up. If you were to stack them, they would all go down a funnel and point to this time where God's expanded it out so we can see more specifically into this paused period, okay? That's just what I, where I'm going. So what, what does this mean? We come to the point 
Jesus is coming back, right? He's coming back with authority. He's coming back with power. He's coming back with his wrath. And we have this time where he pauses. And I'm going to encourage you today to choose Jesus. He is the victor. The lamb who was slain is going to be the one who wins. Is he winning right now? It doesn't really seem like that in America, but across the world today, he's definitely winning. The church is growing like never before under his persecution. We're just getting ready to be persecuted. That's where I, that's my belief. And God is, God works the best. The church works the best under persecution. Oh, you can blame your pastor because he keeps praying for revival, right? When, when do we turn to the Lord? We turn in pain, right? Very rarely do we turn to God in pleasure when everything's going good. We always turn during our suffering. So it is the pain, the heartache, but Christ is the victor. He was the lamb who was slain, but he wins. Think about that. How many people here are like going to choose the soldier that's bleeding out to be their, their victor, let alone the guy who doesn't have a gun, let alone the animal who doesn't have a gun, the baby animal that doesn't have a gun, and he's shot, but he comes back to life? Well, that's, that's kind of exciting. He wins. He will be their shepherd, it says. The lamb will be the shepherd. I think that's kind of ironic and fun. And he will make his tabernacle among them. What do we know the tabernacle to be? Where, where did we find that in the Old Testament? When they were traveling in the wilderness, right? He brought their tabernacle with them. What's the importance of the tabernacle opposed to the temple? The tabernacle can move. The tabernacle can go where you go. He wants to put your tabernacle in your heart. Does that make sense? He moves where you do. Whoa, that's exciting and scary all at the same time. The paradox of being a Christian. So, Jesus understands pain. He understands hurt. He was slain, for goodness sake, and for sin's sake as well right? He knows. He understands death. He understands it so well, he defeated it. He doesn't make sense to the world at all, but that's all right because he makes sense to the one who sits on the throne, which is God the Father. And I think that's all that matters, except for to you. Does he make sense to you? And that's what it comes down to. Does he make sense each one of us. And that's our choice that we have to make. Will you choose Jesus? Are you willing to start a relationship with him? Are you really willing to commit to that relationship? Are you willing to endure to the end so that we can have life eternal together? Remember, God's wrath is coming and it's going to be great and it's going to be terrible. And I pray that you will choose Jesus today so you can walk fearless like I am because I have a shepherd who's watching over me, which happens to be a lamb. Love the irony.
I pray that you will choose Jesus today. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. If we submit to him by his grace, he freely gives us hope and a future, and the future is bright. Can't take that away. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for giving us a way out, to giving us a way back to righteousness, to give us a way back to being holy like you are, Lord. You are a God who cares about us. You're a God who saves, and we praise you. you. We adore you because you are so humble in that position. You became a servant, and you were a servant to death, yet you defeated it, and God made you a ruler over everything. We praise you for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would pull on our heart to pull closer to you for Jesus-like disciple-making. Um, we ask that you would guide and direct us closer today. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.